Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church family. It's uh, great to see you this morning. Great to be here with you. I I wondered how many of you would be affected by that uh, spring snowfall. Uh, I I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of the snow now. (laughs) I I do love the metaphor, though your sins are scarlet, they will be washed white as snow. I love the sparkle of the sunshine on the snow as the jewels, uh, you know, uh, of snow reflected, and, and it's just gorgeous to be able to see that. But about now, I, I want to say to the Lord, enough already. <laughs> but this is Ontario, right? And we can rail against it, we can say what we like, and this, the winter and the weather will do what it wants. Meaning that we're in a cycle of weather, aren't we? But we're anticipating that winter will lose its grip and spring will renew the earth. It's such a lovely metaphor for the work of God the Holy Spirit in all our lives. We anticipate that after those seasons that are dark and difficult, renewal comes. God will be among us and bless us. And I pray that that will be true for us as we dig into this passage of John chapter 4 verses uh, 1 to 26 this morning, uh, the assigned text for us. It's a passage of scripture in which we really see the activity of God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and and we see this theme or this thesis that missing people matter to God. Now, that's a great truth for us to lean into, but I want to begin by asking the question, why should we as a church and individually care about missions and join God on his mission and the simple answer is he's the missionary God and he asks us to join him and he asks us to care about what he cares about which is missing people not only does he care for us who have uh, heard the call of his spirit through his word and we've responded to it and received his son We're, we're part of his eternal everlasting family now but the truth is he asks us to share his heart He is the God we understood in the last chapter that so loved this world that he gave his only son. He is the missionary God. He is the one that takes initiative. He's the one that takes action. And friends, the the reason behind the why and how we have come to know Christ ourselves is this amazing truth. Missing people matter to God. If they didn't matter to him, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be leaning in. We wouldn't be asking and inquiring and worshiping because we wouldn't have an opportunity. It's because missing people matter to God. And this demands not only that we respect others. Why? Because they're made in the same image and likeness of God, right? All of us are formed in his image. And what God the Father really wants is to bring us back into that communion with him. The people of our world mattered enough to God 
that he was not willing to live in that eternal holiness and communion of community between the Father, Son, and Spirit, but he was willing to send his one and only Son so that we might have an opportunity to belong to him, right? Missing people matter to God. So let's make that... um, push that into what we're experiencing in our world today. Does he care about Russian people? Does he care about Ukrainian people? Does he care about the Americans to the south and the Inuit to the north? Does he care about the unreached in Indonesia? Does he care about the unreached in China? Does he care about those who would call themselves by another faith and another name? And the answer is yes. Profoundly, yes. Deeply, passionately, yes. Because missing people matter to God. Think of it this way, is that he is the one who was willing to go to those extreme lengths of himself entering our world so that he could be a servant to us. Here's the power of the gospel. God wants nothing from you until he's given everything he has to you. Nothing from you. He wants to give himself first to you. So in this context of of potential division that we see right at the very beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus, it was his disciples who were baptizing. And when Jesus learned of this, it says he left that region of the Jordan and was going back to the Galilee district around the lake. Now, what was that all about is, well, the political spiritual leaders of the day were trying to create a wedge between Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah and really making the people prepared to say, God is going to do something in our day. Get right and get ready. Thousands had flocked to him. But now there was an opportunity for the religious political leaders to cry and create a wedge and division between these two individuals and their disciples. Why? To gain ascendancy. It's politics, pure and simple, isn't it? You have to try and discredit those who are on another platform, have a different party. We're going to start seeing that in Ontario in a few months, aren't we? Or we're seeing it already. You're seeing it in the big conservative debate. Uh, that's going on as they elect a leader, we understand what it is that people are looking for in politics. It was true in this day. And so Jesus leaves the Jordan and the Galilee, and at the same time in these early days of public ministry, what we're going to read in this chapter is how deeply missing people matter to him. By the conversation that is going to occur in the next few verses, we already read it and we're beginning to lean in and say, what is this all about? This conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Friends, if we don't already know this by experience, that the people God asks us to care about, with whom we are to share the good news, might be people we don't even like. Or people who give us attitude. Or people who think they're superior in so many different ways, whether it's economically or in social status or in some other way, and yet... God has not said to us within his word, well, reach the ones you like. 
Or, or why don't you care for the people who are just like you? You know, the people that you feel comfortable with, who speak the same language, who you don't have to explain yourself to, who, who don't misunderstand you. You understand what I'm saying. Is that we can very easily slide into a view as that we'll like the people that we like, thank you very much, and, well, the rest, somebody else can look after them. You know what I'm saying. We, we have these ways of parsing culture. But what the gospel of the kingdom says is not reach the easy ones or care for the ones you like who are near you or open to you. He says clearly make disciples of all nations. Which includes nations that we will find challenging. I for one am so glad that it says he loves the entire world because that includes me and it includes each of you. So we'll see in John's continuation of the gospel how far Jesus is willing to go to reach missing people. And it's so easy for us to imagine in our thinking that if they're not nice people or good people or likable people, we might actually go so far as to say, well, look, the kingdom of God needs some advantage. So why don't we go after the people who will give the kingdom the most advantage? Why don't we go after intellectuals, you know? Why don't we go after people who are living good moral lives already? Why don't we go after those who we think would really make great candidates for the kingdom? We could be inclined to think that we should reach out to those who have that great potential. And friends, we would be wrong if we held those thoughts or expressed those thoughts or allowed that thinking to move us from disengaging the world God has placed us in. It's easy to do, isn't it? Just be nice. Keep to yourself. Sort of go about your own business and your own life. It's not that there's something wrong with that. What I'm suggesting is that we can dismiss the mission of God when we do not think what God is asking of us in joining his mission. Church, let me, uh, let, let me just lead you through this passage and let the story unfold as we go. Because it says in verse 4, after there was this collision within culture, uh, that, that this, this political sort of wrangling that was starting to happen, it says in verse 4, now we had to go through Samaria. Interesting text. Had to go. Now, on the surface, we might say, bringing our reason and rationale with this construct, we might say, oh, well, he had to go there because it was the only way the road went. He was just following the course. Or maybe we'd say, well, it was the shortest way to go to Galilee. And, or maybe it was the only way, or maybe it was the safest way. All of which are rational and all of which are wrong. The safest, shortest, and easiest way would have been to stick to the Jordan. There was a good route that way. But when it says it had to go, the construct there is the same construct of another gospel in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was just a boy of 12... And, you know, he had gone every year with his, with his parents and their extended family from Nazareth up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the family, of course, big family, I'm assuming, you know, all these big relatives, you from Sri Lanka might know something of that, how the extended family works. 
uh, it, it, it's myself in Canada, when we added up my family in the West, there were six of us, two grandparents, two, two children, my sister and I, and my parents. And, and that was it. So when you're talking about family and relatives and stuff, I go, well, I don't know anything about that until I have met families like many of yours. And I go, now, how many of you are there in this family? And they start counting it up, and I think, that's not a family, it's a tribe, right? It's, it's a whole village, right? My, my sister married into a, a large family, and they celebrated uh, an anniversary for the grandparents, and there were 250 people who attended, and they were all direct uh, descendants, only three generations, I went, oh my goodness, I don't know anything about that. Well, I don't know all of the siblings within Jesus' family. We know there were several. We, we don't know about Mary and Joseph's family, but we know it was a big group, right? So when you're traveling in a big group, what happens, and I'm getting in the weeds with the story, but what happens is Jesus disappeared and everybody thought somebody else in the family had him. He was a 12-year-old, Right? They were panicked. They went back to Jerusalem three days looking for the boy. Where did they find him? In the temple. His mother was crazy with panic and worry. And so when she found him, she said, why have you done this to us? In other words, you disrespected us by not telling the family where you were. And this is Jesus' amazing response. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Had to be. Same construct of language, which means there was a necessity outside of him that demanded this of him. Interesting construct, right? It would be easy to read that and, and sort of miss it, that it was circumstantial, but it wasn't circumstantial at all. He was driven by what God the Father for an appointment with a person you and I would walk by every other day. So let's, let's look at this, what, what, what's going to happen, because within the context, Jesus has to go to, to um, this area. It's chapter 4, verse 9, that really tells us why he shouldn't be there. Because down in verse 9, if you read it for yourself, and I think it'll be on the, the, the next slide, it says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And then there's a bracket that John says, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's a very nice language for saying that the two groups are both racist. They hate each other. They don't intermarry, they don't go to the same schools, they don't eat in each other's houses, they don't share foods back and forth. And so when Jesus is left at the well, as it says in the context, and the disciples go into the village, what they're saying is, we will bear the burden of going to be with the Samaritans, because this is what the Jews thought about Samaritans. If you go where a Samaritan is, and you sit where a Samaritan sits, and you eat what a Samaritan sits, you know, eats, you become unclean like the Samaritans. And that means if you want to be ceremonially clean, you have to do a mikvah, which is an entire ceremonial bath, and wash your clothes, and then you have to have sunrise and sunset, and then you can be clean again ceremonially. So it was a big deal for those that were into the keeping all of this minutia of the law. So they spared Jesus. They went to the village. They left him alone. Where? Well, at Jacob's well. It's historical significance, and Actually, I just want to, to show you a couple of slides about this. Um, the first slide, I think the next one that's coming, shows you uh, sort of the field and the area that was given by Jacob to his son, it says. 
And here is a picture from 1900 to 1920 before Israel was really uh, a nation again, before it was all developed. This is the Sikar region. This is the, the well. The next slide shows you that not only is there a well, but there's a place you go down under the ground to the well. It was a deeper well. And the third picture shows you that it's sort of a cavern, as it were. Now there's a church built there, and you don't really get this perspective. But from this historic picture, this could have been something of what it was like. I'm not saying it's exactly like this, but it could have been like this. So this would be a nice place to be because it was the sixth hour. What does it mean? It was high noon. It was hot. They were tired from the journey. You can imagine they made that push to get to a place where they could sit down, relax, have a meal. It was a village called Sikar. And Jesus was there in the well. It was cool, maybe a little more comfortable, out of the sun, away from the heat. He was sitting in the well. And as he's sitting down there, what do we see next? Well, in the heat of the day, a woman comes to draw water. Now, the thing we need to say again, church, is what's going on here? Why would a woman be doing heavy work in the middle of the day? Because, look, I'm not in any way... Um, speaking down when I say this, women are incredibly smart in every culture and generation and time. In other words, you do work when? In the cool of the day, when it's comfortable. And you usually do it as a collective. You know, women, you know all about this, don't you? You do things together. Why? Because you talk about the village, you talk about your kids, you talk about the problems, you, you do some sort of networking and, and you do some problem solving. And, and women, you will do things together that men would never consider doing together. No, we're so ruggedly independent, right? I've had this happen, I don't know how often, where, where Donna and I will be out with a group of people at a restaurant for a meal, and one woman will say to the other women at the table, I have to go and powder my nose. We all know that means go to the bathroom, and she will look at the rest of the women and say, anyone want to join me? Well, I'm here to tell you, a whole herd of women gets up and goes. But, look, I have yet to be in a group of men sitting at a table having a meal and have one man turn to the other man and say, hey, I'm going to the john. Anyone want to join? <laughs> it just doesn't occur to us to do those kinds of things together. Women do all kinds of things together. So when you see a woman from the village in the heat of the day doing heavy work by herself alone, what do you know? She's trouble or in trouble, and I should avoid her, right? Like, when you and I are walking down the street and you see a person who's talking to someone who isn't there, what's your immediate reaction? Avoid them. Because we don't know what trouble they're in. We know that they're muttering, and we would assume we shouldn't engage with that, right? Unless they engage us. Like, we would just find it mostly awkward, so here is Jesus sitting there, and a woman comes, and she sees him, and she knows right away from his clothing that he's a Jew. A style, right? Culture. He knows right away when he sees her, she's a Samaritan. Now, we already know, already the foreshadowing that John has given, and we've already read, that Jews and Samaritans don't have anything to do with each other. And what does Jesus do? He does a very awkward thing. He talks to her and says, would you give me a drink? 
Now, it's human kindness, right? He's thirsty. He's worn out. He's tired. He's sitting there. He's a stranger. She doesn't know him. She can probably say he looks a little played out. He's probably weary. And she looks at him. What does she give to him? Lip. What? Are you out of your ever-loving mind? That is my colloquial expression for a woman who is offended by the request. Why? Because if she had offered him a drink, she would know that a Jewish man would disregard it. He might knock it out of her hand. He might curse at her. He would have choice things to say to her if he said anything at all. She knows she can't offer him a drink. And here he is asking her, and she wonders, what on earth is going on? This shouldn't happen. Look, missing people matter to God so much that he is willing to endure, experience, and initiate awkward conversations. But you know what we do? Often, what do we do? Not risk that. Why? Because no one likes it. Socially, it's awful. And so we just remain silent. Now, remember, Jesus had to go to Samaria. This is the reason he had to go, was to meet this woman. I, I'm certain of it. Not only because of what goes on in the story, but because of what happens in the rest of the chapter that we're going to be learning more about next week. But this is what I'm here to tell you. He has the conversation. He initiates it. And she gives him this, all this reason why I can't offer you a drink. And he said, actually, if you knew who I was, and if you knew the gift I was bringing to you, you wouldn't have waited for me to ask you for a drink. You would have been asking me for a drink of living water. What is he doing at this point? He's ignoring the barriers and the walls, and he's beginning to address her at the level of human need. She's alone. She has needs. She has shame. We're going to learn all of that as we continue to go through. But what I'm suggesting to you is that one of the great things that churches like ours do is to reach in to bless a community that really needs help and assistance. That's what Jesus is offering her. She doesn't really understand. He's using a metaphor that sort of escapes her, but suddenly intrigues her because of her circumstance. So here's the question. When you go into the community and you offer them a, a Christmas hamper, when you go into the community and offer them basketball, when you go into a community and you seek to meet a known need, are people going to understand, oh, thank you, you're a Christian, would you tell me more? Probably not. What they're going to say is, well, what are you doing this for? And the ready answer is, well, God loves us and we're here to love you. And that's what we offer. Unless they want more. But here's what I'm going to say to you, is when you have ministries that are classically defined as outreach, what we need to expect is that people will take what they want, not what we offer. And we're going to see that because the conversation continues and she says to him, well, now, where are you going to get this living water? You've got nothing to draw water from this well with. And like, are you a conjurer? Like, what are you talking about living water? And you can't even drink for it, from it yourself. Are you bigger and better than Jacob who gave us this well and watered all his flocks? And this has historic significance and it belongs to us. And she's sort of going on a bit of a rant. 
And Jesus, again, what does he do in response to that as we continue to, to walk through this, uh, this account? Is, is she, she's saying it politely, sir, you know, and Jesus says, you know what, everyone who drinks from this well is going to have to keep coming back again and again and again and again because you'll keep getting thirsty, but the living water I have to offer you will quench your thirst forever and it will result in eternal life. <laughs> and she goes, okay, now I'm hooked. What are you really talking about? Because she says to him, okay, I'll tell you what. If you've got it and you're offering it, I'll take a cup, thank you very much. Now, does she understand Jesus? No, not a chance. What is she thinking? Wow, she's thinking. No more coming to the well at noonday to avoid all those dirty looks, to avoid all those whispers, to avoid all that shame that I'm experiencing from everyone else in the community. If I have living water, I don't have to do the work. I don't have to come at noon. I can live a more comfortable life. Listen, many people are going to misunderstand the offer of the gospel in those terms. They're going to think, oh, well, maybe religion would be good for me. Maybe being more religious would give me more good luck. Maybe being more religious would give me a better kind of life. Maybe being religious would allow my kids to get back in under control. In other words, what I'm saying is people outside the Christian faith are going to look at what we offer them in terms that benefits them, not in terms that transforms them. We need to understand that, because if we don't understand that, we will be terribly disappointed when people come for the goodies and run away, when people take what we offer and go, thanks very much for that. Any, anything else, by the way? You understand what I'm saying is they're in it for a better life, they're in it for comfort, but they're not in it for what we're offering, at least not yet, because they don't understand fully what we're offering. So what does Jesus do? Well, he puts his finger or thumb on the sorest point of her heart. And the gospel does this all the time for us because we come and we think, I'll take what I need. I'd like $3 worth of God in a paper sack to make me comfortable, but not to change my life. Right? So he says to her, I'll tell you what. Go get your husband and come back, and I'll give it to both of you. Oh, my goodness. So what does she do at that point? Oh, too bad. I don't have a husband. She skirts the entire issue. Why? She doesn't really know him. She's not going to get into the depths of her own heart with him. She's confused by all of this conversation at this point because suddenly it's been out there comfort and good for me and now it's in close and it's dealing with my mess. You know, like the preacher who said, or the woman who said to the preacher at the end of the sermon, well, most of the message is okay, but at the end, you really started to meddle. So what the gospel does, it meddles in us, right? So she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And he looks her in the eye. I, I would love to see this real, uh, you know, the DVD of this in heaven and watch Jesus' face and watch the woman's face and just see what's going on. Because I imagine he has this really peaceful look at her. And she's horrified. And he says to her, well, you told the truth, 
sort of. As far as you went, that's true, you don't have a husband <clears throat> right now. But woman, the truth is you've had five men as your husbands, and now you're just shacked up with the flavor of the month. Pardon my vernacular, but she's not bothered with marriage. What's going on in this woman's life? We have no idea. We don't know if there was abuse, neglect. We, we don't know. We, we could assume some things. We could be wrong about those things. But the point that I'm making is she was a woman of great need. She's been sipping at the wrong well. She's been looking for a man to fill her life and fill the God-sized hole. She's been looking for a relationship to keep her safe and to give her a sense of continuity and protection and care and security. And she can only find that not in a person. She needs to find it in God. So right now the penny drops and she looks at him and she says, Sir, <clears throat> you know things about people, meaning you're a prophet. That's the word she uses. I think you're a prophet. You know things about me. Like, she's not arguing, she's not defending, but she is moving it aside. So what is she doing? She's asking her really tough question. And when we're sharing within the community, we're going to find people who have questions that really aren't theirs, but they're questions that their culture or their family or their community or their college, their university, or the books they've read have given them to hold. And so here's her big question. And it's a good one. It's a doozy. Do you know what? My ancestors say that we should worship here on this mountain. But you Jews say we should go to Jerusalem. So what's the right way to heaven? What's the right religion? Who's right in all of this mess? And what does Jesus do? Well, interesting because she draws the question and it's a box and he draws a bigger circle around the box. He says, actually, you've missed the point. It's not where you go, it's who you know. I'm, I'm so glad that that's true of the gospel of Jesus because we don't go to Jerusalem to worship. We don't even have to come here to worship. All the worship you're leading us is tremendous, and there's something about joining our voices that's wonderful. I'm not suggesting we don't need to go. And I've often had people say that to me. You know, Dave, I, I'm not going to go to church because my church is really when I'm outside in the wilds, when I'm fishing, I'm hunting, I'm, I'm walking. And I've learned to say to them, oh, really, so how do you worship there? And then they looked like the deer in the headlights, right? Suddenly they weren't expecting me to really ask about worship. They were just using a defense that says I don't need to go there. And they're right, they don't need to. But just because you don't need to go to a place, are you actually engaging God meaningful in the two ways? He is spirit and so are we. We worship in spirit, not in place. And we worship him in truth, not in imagination. We hear his words and we follow what he says. So she speak, he speaks to her and he says, look, it's not about Jerusalem or Samaria. It's about God and knowing him and worshiping him as he's asked. And then she says to him, well, you know, someone is coming to help us because we really need help. The Messiah is going to come. He'll explain all of this to us. And he looks her in the eye and says, that's me. And just then there's a big interruption, and we don't know the end of the story until you come back to church. 
and hear the rest of the, the messages in this chapter, but I'm going to wrap it up a bit and say, and I've just given the person that's doing my slides fits because I'm not following my notes. I'm just speaking to you from the text. But here's the point. Missing people matter to God so much that he's willing to have an appointment that's out of his way, that is challenging and difficult, because he loves the woman who's missing. So my question to you is, how do you see the people around you? Do you see them as missing people who need Jesus? Or do you use other terms that allow you to excuse yourself from being on mission with God? Because frankly, it's hard. And people won't get what we're offering. And people will give us excuses. And people will change the subject. And they'll use these big questions. And I don't know what I'm going to say. Well, that's why we have Pastor Ronald here. Because if someone stumps you, you just get on the phone. You say, you, or first you say to the person who's asked you that stump question, well, that's a good question. Admit it. I'm not sure I could give you an adequate answer. But I'll tell you what. Could, could, would you let me think about it? And I'll come back to you in a day or make an appointment. And then as soon as you get home, Pastor Ronald, do I have a doozy for you? Have you ever come across this? And you'll say, well, you know, here's the scripture. And by the way, have you prayed about this? What is your approach going to be? He'll work you through it. Talk to Ian, one of the elders. Talk, talk to one of your leaders. Talk to your friends. You don't have to be in it alone. And you don't have to worry about being immediate. You can always come back. Because look, what happens is, if we excuse ourselves from being on mission with God, we will miss seeing God at work in his mission. And that's where the fun is. Ah, that's where the challenge is and the spiritual reality and all of the rest. But listen, is it a need for you to have a spiritual adjustment this morning and say, God, I've been looking at people the wrong way. You didn't, they didn't need to turn you down. I turned you down for them. I made the decision that they weren't interested. I, I didn't even test the waters. Maybe we need to repent of that. Maybe we need a realignment with God in grace. The second thing is, maybe you're here today and you've heard a scandalous story of a woman who's been married five times and now she's just living common law. And you think in your heart, or you have to this point, that while the gospel might be true for some, if people really knew who I was, where I've been, what's been done to me and what I've done, I wouldn't have a chance to relate to this community. But listen, here's the gospel. Your flaws aren't fatal. Right? Your failures aren't final. Because Jesus loves this woman and she responds in grace. She will at the end of the story go to the whole village. She goes to the men and she says, Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And what does she mean? Didn't push me out but has given me a chance for new life.
transformation. You see, it's the gospel that changes people. It's not you and I. When we're on mission with God, we want to be at our best in terms of being able to present the gospel. But listen, it's about God working in them. And yes, through you, but it's not about you. So why don't we take our eyes off ourselves and relax a bit and let God do the work only he can. Agreed? And why don't we willingly believe that if God can work in me, he can work in anyone? That's Paul's testimony. That's the woman's testimony. That's our testimony. So I'm asking if you would be willing to see that our God is the missionary God and join him on his mission to find missing people. Father God, thank you for giving us a mission field right around us. For some of us, it's even in an extended family. For many of us, it's in the marketplace, the workplace. Uh, for others, it's in the sporting place. It's wherever we meet people in your image and likeness who just don't know you. Would you make us only more than just nice people and those who are willing to let our light shine, so to speak, and, and help us to have some courage and willingness to engage people around us with the very hope of the gospel that has changed us. Thank you that this congregation, that we as a church family are a light on a hill. Would you encourage us to let that light shine, that others might see you in us and hear about you from us. Give us your strength and courage, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.